Chapter Four of the Little Colonel's Hero. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Lars Rolander. The Little Colonel's Hero by Annie Fellows Johnston. Chapter Four. Hero's Story. Late that afternoon the Major sat out in the shady courtyard of the hotel, where vines, potted plants, and a fountain made a cool green garden spot. He was thinking of his little daughter, who had been dead many long years, the American child, whom his dog had rescued from the runaway in the morning, was wonderfully like her. She had the same fair hair, he thought, that had been his little Christine's great beauty the same delicate wild rose-pink in her cheeks, the same mischievous smile dimpling her laughing face. But Christine's eyes had not been a starry hazel like the little colonel's. They were blue as the flax-flowers she used to gather. Thirty, was it? No, forty years ago. As he counted the years, the thought came to him like a pain that he was an old, old man now, all alone in the world save for a dog, and a niece whom he scarcely knew and seldom saw. As he sat there with his head bowed down, dreaming over his past, the little colonel came out into the courtyard. She had dressed early and gone down to the reading-room to wait until her mother was ready for dinner, but catching sight of the major through the long glass doors, she laid down her book. The lonely expression of his furrowed face, the bowed head, and the empty sleeve appealed to her strongly. "'I believe I'll go out and talk to him,' she thought. "'If Grandfather were away off in a strange land by himself like that, I'd want somebody to cheer him up. It is always good to feel that one is welcome, and Lloyd was glad that she had ventured into the courtyard. When she saw the smile that lighted the Major's face at sight of her, and when the dog, rising at her approach, came forward joyfully, wagging his tail. The conversation was easy to begin, with Hero for a subject. There were many things she wanted to know about him, how he happened to belong to the Major what country he came from, why he was called a St. Bernard, and if the Major had ever owned any other dogs. After a few questions it all came about as she had hoped it would. The old man settled himself back in his chair, thought a moment, and then began at the first of his acquaintance with St. Bernard dogs, as if he were reading a story from a book. Away up in the Alpine mountains, too high for trees to grow, where there is only bare rock and snow and cutting winds, climbs the road that is known as the Great St. Bernard Pass. It is an old, old road. The Celts crossed it when they invaded Italy. The Roman legions crossed it when they marched out to subdue Gaul and Germany. Ten hundred years ago the Saracen robbers hid among its rocks, to waylay unfortunate travellers. You will read about all that in your history some time, and about the famous march Napoleon made across it on his way to Marengo. 
but the most interesting fact about the road to me is that for over seven hundred years there has been a monastery high up on the bleak mountain top called the monastery of saint bernard once when i was travelling through the alps i stopped there one cold night almost frozen the good monks welcomed me to their hospice as they do all strangers who stopped for food and shelter and treated me as kindly as if i had been a brother in the morning one of them took me out to the kennels and showed me the dogs that are trained to look for travellers in the snow you may imagine with what pleasure i followed him and listened to the tales he told me he said there is not as much work for the dogs now as there used to be years ago since the hospice has been connected with the valley towns by telephone travellers can inquire about the state of the weather and the pass before venturing up the dangerous mountain passes still the storms begin with little warning sometimes and wayfarers are overtaken by them and lost in the blinding snowfall the pass fills suddenly and but for the dogs many would perish oh i know interrupted lloyd eagerly there is a story about them in my old third reader and a picture of a big saint bernard dog with a flask tied round his neck and a child on his back yes answered the major it is quite probable that that was a picture of the dog they called barry he was with the good monks for twelve years and in that time saved the lives of forty travellers there is a monument erected to him in paris in the cemetery for dogs the sculptor carved that picture into the stone the noble animal with a child on his back as if he were in the act of carrying it to the hospice twelve years is a long time for a dog to suffer such hardship and exposure night after night he plunged out alone into the deep snow and the darkness barking at the top of his voice to attract the attention of lost travellers many a time he dropped into the drifts exhausted with scarcely enough strength left to drag himself back to the hospice forty lives saved is a good record you may be sure that in his old age barry was tenderly cared for the monks gave him a pension and sent him to Bern, where the climate is much warmer when he died a taxidermist preserved his skin and he was placed in the museum at Bern, where he stands to this day i am told with a little flask around his neck i saw him there one time and although barry was only a dog and i an officer in my country's service i stood with uncovered head before him for he was as truly a hero and served humankind as nobly as if he had fallen on the field of battle he had been trained like a soldier to his duty and no matter how the storms raged on the mountains how dark the night or how dangerous the pass that led along the slippery precipice at the word of command he sprang to obey only a dumb beast some people would call him guided only by brute instinct but in his shaggy old body beat a loving heart loyal to his master's command and faithful to his duty as i stood there gazing into the kind old face i thought of the time when i lay wounded on the field of strasbourg how glad i would have been to have seen some dog like barry come bounding to my aid 
I had fallen in a thicket where the ambulance corpse did not discover me until next day. I lay there all that black night, wild with pain, groaning for water. I could see the lanterns of the ambulances as they moved about, searching for the wounded among the many dead, but was too faint from loss of blood to raise my head and shout for help. They told me afterward that if my wound could have received immediate attention, perhaps my arm might have been saved. But only a keen sense of smell could have traced me in the dense thicket where I lay. No one had thought of training dogs for ambulance service then. The men did their best, but they were only men, and I was overlooked until it was too late to save my arm. Well, as I said, I stood and looked at Barry, wondering if it were not possible to train dogs for rescue work on battlefields as well as in mountain passes. The more I thought of it, the more my longing grew to make such an attempt. I read everything I could find about trained dogs, visited kennels where collies and other intelligent sheep dogs were kept, and corresponded with many people about it. Finally I found a man who was as much interested in the subject as I. Herr Bungartz is his name. To him chiefly belongs the credit for the development of the use of ambulance dogs to aid the wounded on the field of battle. He is now at the head of a society to which I belong. It has over a thousand members, including many princes and generals. We furnish the money that supports the kennels, and the dogs are bred and trained free for the army. Now, for the last eight years, it has been my greatest pleasure to visit the kennels, where as many as fifty dogs are kept constantly in training. It was on my last visit that I got Hero. His leg had been hurt in some accident on the training field. It was thought that he was too much disabled to ever do good service again so they allowed me to take him. Two old cripples, I suppose they thought we were, comrades in misfortune. That was nearly a year ago. I took him to an eminent surgeon, told him his history, and interested him in his case. He treated him so successfully that now, as you see, the leg is entirely well. Sometimes I feel that it is my duty to give him back to the service, although I paid for the rearing of a fine Scotch collie in his stead. He is so unusually intelligent and well-trained, but it would be hard to part with such a good friend. Although I have had him less than a year, he seems very much attached to me, and I have grown more fond of him than I would have believed possible. I am an old man now, and I think he understands that he is all I have. Good hero, he knows he's a comfort to his old master. At the sound of his name, uttered in a sad voice, the great dog got up and laid his head on the major's knee, looking wistfully into his face. Of course you oughtn't to give him back, cried the little colonel. If he were mine, I wouldn't give him up for the president or the emperor or the Tsar or anybody but for the soldiers the poor wounded soldiers suggested the major 
Lloyd hesitated, looking from the dog to the empty sleeve above it. "'Well,' she declared at last, "'I wouldn't give him up while the country's at peace. I'd wait till the last minute, until there was going to be an awful battle, and then I'd make them promise to let me have him again when the war was over, just the minute it was over. It would be like giving away part of your family to give away Hero." Suddenly the Major spoke to the dog in French, a quick, sharp sentence that Lloyd could not understand. But Hero, without an instant's hesitation, bounded from the courtyard where they sat into the hall of the hotel. Through the glass door she could see him leaping up the stairs, and almost before the Major could explain that he had sent him for the shoulder-bags he wore in service, the dog was back with them, grasped firmly in his mouth. "'Now the flask,' said the Major. While the dog obeyed the second order, he opened the bags for Lloyd to examine them. They were marked with a red cross in a square of white, and contained rolls of bandages from which any man able to use his arms could help himself until his rescuer brought further aid. The flask which Hero brought was marked in the same way and the major buckled it to his collar, saying as he fastened first that, and then the shoulder-bags in place. When a dog is in training, soldiers pretending to be dead or wounded are hidden in the woods or ravines, and he is taught to find a fallen body and to bark loudly. If the soldier is in some place too remote for his voice to bring aid, the dog seizes a cap, a handkerchief, or a belt, any article of the man's clothing which he can pick up, and dashes back to the nearest ambulance. "'What a lovely game that would make!' exclaimed Lloyd. "'Do you suppose that I could train the two bobs to do that? We often play soldier at Locust. Now what is it you say to Hero when you want him to hunt the men? Let me see if he'll mind me.' The Major repeated the command. "'But I can't speak French,' she said in dismay. "'What is it in English?' "'Hero can't understand anything in English,' said the Major, laughing at the perplexed expression that crept into the little Colonel's face. "'How funny!' she exclaimed. "'I never thought of that before. I supposed, of course, that all animals were English. Anyway, Hero comes when I call him, and wags his tail when I speak just as if he understands every word. It is the kindness in your voice he understands, and the smile in your eyes, the affection in your caress. That language is the same the world over, to men and animals alike. But he never would start out to hunt the wounded soldiers unless you gave this command. Let me hear if you can say it after me." Lloyd tripped over some of the rough sounds as she repeated the sentence, but tried it again and again, until the Major cried, "'Bravo! You shall have more lessons in French, dear child, until you can give the command so well that Hero shall obey you as he does me.' Then he began talking of Christine, her fair hair, her blue eyes, her playful ways, and Lloyd listening drew him on with many questions, till the little French maiden seemed to stand pictured before her, 
her hands filled with the lovely spring flowers of the motherland. Suddenly the major arose, bowing courteously, for Mrs. Sherman, seeing them from the doorway, had smiled and started toward them. Springing up, Lloyd ran to meet her. "'Mother!' she whispered. "'Please ask the major to sit at our table to-night at dinner. He's such a dear old man and tell such interesting things, and he's lonesome. The tears came into his eyes when he talked about his little daughter. She was just my age when she died, mother, and he thinks she looked like me. The major's courtly manner and kind face had already aroused Mrs. Sherman's interest. His empty sleeve reminded her of her father. His loneliness appealed to her sympathy, and his kindness to her little daughter had won her deepest appreciation. She turned with a cordial smile to repeat Lloyd's invitation, which was gladly accepted. That was the beginning of a warm friendship. From that time he was included in their plans. Now in nearly all their excursions and drives there were four in the party instead of three and five very often whenever it was possible hero was with them he and the little colonel often went out together alone it grew to be a familiar sight in the town the graceful fair-haired child and the big tawny saint bernard walking side by side along the quay she was not afraid to venture anywhere with such a guard as for hero he followed her as gladly as he did his master. End of chapter 4 Read by Lars Rolander